love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, so the last time we were together, we looked at Joshua 7 and 8 as a whole. And uh, we're going to kind of look at them again tonight from a different perspective. And then next week, we're going to be back in the last part of chapter 8. And, uh, and that'll take care of these two chapters. Um, so you can kind of continue or consider this as a continuation of last week's effort. It's really more like a second perspective covering much of the same scripture that we've looked at in the last section. So it's not a correction. It's nothing like that. It's just a further development of the same passage. We, we looked in this and we understood after a difficult defeat, uh, Joshua had uh, some things to, to take care of. We comprehend after a difficult defeat or an unexpected failure, there's always a choice. And the choice is, most simply, the choice is you can choose to lie down in that failure. Or you can choose to rise and move on from it. I'm sorry. This doesn't have anything to do with that. I've just got it on my mind. So that means we can remain defeated or we can try again and, and possibly become a victor. We could be scarred by a failure or we could attempt to become an overcomer. But either way, the choice is very personal and it's ultimately ours. We, we have that choice in failure. And not to state the obvious, but as with everything else, failure always has a cause. There, there is a cause for failure. There's a cause for a, a particular failure. And the cause may lie, in, it may lie in a preparation or a lack of it. It may be a planning issue, as we talked about. It may be a prayer issue or simply could just be a place. Use wrong place, wrong time, right? And, and so there's failures that occur, but we can be sure that there is a cause. And, and in any failure, and look, we're talking, about, we're talking about things that you attempt to do and fail at. We're also talking about failures in your spiritual life, failures in your spiritual walk, difficulties that arise. We, we need to have enough foresight to, to look and determine what is the cause of the failure and then rectify that cause as we move forward or else we're destined to repeat that failure, right? And, and we comprehend that. It's a very simple uh, uh, concept. Often we need inspiration in order to overcome or continue forward. And as Christians, we have the, the very special uh, opportunity, availability of a supernatural inspiration. And so we're not left to natural design and natural choices and just the way the, the, the cookie crumbles, so to speak. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God and we're gifted with an eternally settled, inerrant word. And so that, that inspiration sometimes is always going to be supernatural, but it may come to us as we pray. It may be an act of the Holy Spirit or it may be found as we read the scriptures but in, in my life, it's usually a combination of all the above. We catch a glimpse of some of that inspiration in this passage concerning Joshua and his armies and their conquest 
of Ai and then Bethel and then the land of Canaan. We've already witnessed the failure that, that led to the initial loss to Ai. We, we looked at that last week, that, that sin of Achan. And we've assessed and agreed that the failure was actually a lack of prayer on Joshua's part. If Joshua would have prayed, God would reveal to him that weakness, that danger, that flaw. But without prayer, there was a flawed plan. In order to get the full picture of moving forward after a defeat, we have to backtrack a little bit and recognize some of the key elements of overcoming a defeat. And that's really what I want to talk about tonight, recovering from or overcoming disappointments and defeats. We, we would start again in Joshua chapter 7, and let's read just a few verses there. In verse 6, Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide. He and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God that we'd been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us round and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? And the Lord God said unto Joshua, Get thee up. I want us to, to remember as we talked last week that as we look at that prayer, we, we, we said last week that it, it is a, a, a leader praying with conviction. We also stated that there's a hint of protest in that prayer. You can hear it in the words uh, as Joshua would cry out to God, oh, Lord God, why? But most importantly, we understand that in order for him to pray with conviction, whether it be in conviction or protest, the first thing he had to do was concede that there was a defeat, right? He had to concede the past defeat. That's what we see when Joshua rents his clothes and falls to the earth and tears his clothes and falls to the earth upon his face. That is, that is Joshua conceding that there has been a defeat, a loss, a great loss, a great defeat, an overwhelming Defeat, a shocking, very disappointing defeat. And Joshua is, is conceding that. It's not as Christians, as born-again believers, that we live in some kind of uh, uh, pixie land, right? Sometimes things are difficult. Sometimes they don't go the way we want them to go. And, and so there's this idea of conceding. We, we consider this a prayer protest, but it's also a concession. It's an acknowledgement of failure, the simple fact that Joshua is appealing to the Lord and mourning the loss of men and, and a loss of confidence is indicative of concession and, and I would say even acceptance of the defeat. And it's not literally spelled out for us in the passage, but I believe it's worth noting that we, we all are going to have some failures. And again, I'm thinking in the line of spiritual letdowns or trials or temptations. And when we do, there's a need to move on. And then there comes a question of how do we move on? How do we go beyond that? How do we get past that? Well, the short answer is concede the, the loss, the failure, the letdown, or the collapse. But the long answer is revealed in the following steps that we see Joshua do. I, I thought about the way that Joshua approaches this 
And, and I would say to you that the moment before Joshua tore his clothes and cast himself to the ground, there was a personal acceptance of what had occurred. Right? There was a moment uh, where those uh, men returned and they were, they were beaten and 30 some odd of them were missing. There was a moment where Joshua probably had to process that. But in that moment, at a personal level, Joshua accepted in that moment privately a realization that, okay, we have failed. It's very important that we understand that. That we accept it privately. That there is a realization that there has been a failure. Because that thing that is not accepted is not believed. And if it's not believed, it cannot be overcome. Here we see this picture of realization. And then there is this acknowledgement publicly. And I want you to know that as we read there in chapter 7 verses 6 through 8. That was a very public event. <laughs> Uh, there would have been uh, many of those elders in that community uh, that when they, when they saw those men come in and Joshua would undertake that action, they would have undertook it with him. Uh, there would have been a dust cloud of things being thrown in the air and there would have been wailing and there would have been mourning and there would have been an acknowledgement publicly and that is a, a revelation so that, that others have likely noted and, and what I think is important here, and as the Lord would show it to me, is that we're not here in that moment of failure attempting to save face. Rather, at that time, we're transparent with those watching. Right? I, Joshua would be able to say, I was in charge. And I sent those men to their death. That's on me. I've accepted that publicly. I'm acknowledging it. Or privately, I'm acknowledging it publicly. And then there is the idea of, and we don't particularly see it in these verses, but we do as we move forward. There is the idea of abandoning it permanently, the, the picture of repentance. Can I tell you that if, and I, I, could, be, I could be incorrect here, but as the way, as, as I read the book of Joshua, there's not another battle that Joshua doesn't pray before they enter it. Not, not one that the Spirit or the Scriptures point out. Joshua is not, uh, from this moment forward, the, the quintessential perfect leader by any means. We're going to see an, an unequal yoking that occurs in a few chapters that, that we scratch our heads at. But before battle, Joshua prays, moving forward. There's, there's an abandonment. There's a repentance of that. I, I'm sure that, that Joshua would say to his men around him, look, we're not going to do that again. Right, uh, We stepped into that trap one time. We're not going to do that again. We're going to repent from that. And that's what repentance is. Repentance means to turn from something and abandon it permanently. Re the preaching of repentance and the understanding of repentance has been damaged in the last 30 to 50 years because it's not understood. Uh, most people equate repentance with an apology, but if repentance is not an apology. Right? We don't... Just continue to do things over and over and apologize to the Lord for them. That is not repentance. That's insanity. <laughs> uh, repentance is when you turn from something. It is a reversal of direction. And the idea is that you're not going to go that way again or do that thing again. And, and you abandon it. And then, then there's the, the picture of adjusting for it purposefully. And, and so we, we have there a readiness. That when we fall into that trap, whatever that trap may be, 
then moving forward, we're ready for that. That same thing's not going to happen again. If you've ever, if you've ever gotten a, a speeding ticket on a speed trap somewhere, maybe well, we're on camera, uh, one of the previous speed traps in the area, <laughs> right? You adjust the way you go through there from then on. If, unless, of course, you don't pay the speeding ticket or the insurance bill and you're not concerned about it, then you don't adjust anything. You ever get one of those school camera pictures? Uh, I know somebody's got two or three of those, but <laughs> readiness is what we're talking about. We're talking about readiness. We're saying we're not going to make that mistake. We're going to adjust for that. That's a healthy response to a defeat. That is how a healthy person responds to it. This is the unfortunate truth, and, and I, I'm, I'm a little facetious, but, but there's a lot of truth in this. What I see people do all the time, and I have for the last 20 years or so, is that rather than accept it privately and acknowledge it publicly, they absorb it. It becomes a part of who they are. It becomes a part of their being. It defines them. And it's something that is there all the time. And they can't accept it or acknowledge it because they own it. They wear it. And not only do they absorb it, but given enough time, they begin to abuse it. They become dependent upon it as an excuse to do nothing rather than to adjust and do the right thing. Well, you know, I tried that one time. It just didn't work out. You know, I, I tried. You, you ever meet somebody that's been church hurt? Well, I tried that one time. It didn't work out. You tried the wrong thing then. <laughs> Let's adjust and move on, right? Let's look for the real thing. But rather than, than, than adjust or abandon it, they abuse it and then, and then they abide in it. They kind of wallow in it. They, it's just, it is, it, is, it is part of their life story moving forward. And for some people, that's, it's not a big deal. But for others, it can be quite debilitating. Right and, and I believe that the model that Joshua puts forth that we would see in this passage, and again, we would have to understand what's going to occur, it is a, a learn from it and leave it behind type thing. Right? That's, and that's, of course, how I was raised. In my opinion, that is, that's a Christian attitude. In my opinion, that is... Stating the, the obvious fact that my outlook on whatever this thing that we're talking about is, is going to determine the outcome of it. If, if my belief is that thing is going to mar me and define me and debilitate me, it probably is. If my belief is that thing, whatever that thing is, it can be very egregious, it can be very minimal, whatever it is. If I believe, okay, that was a failure... I've accepted that, that failure and I'm going to adjust for it, then it doesn't have to define me. So my outlook is going to have a lot to do with that, that outcome. I, I know that you've seen the, the, the posters over the years, uh, Attitude Determines Altitude. It's a, it's a quippy little thing. Can I tell you something that's missing a line? Attitude determines action. Action determines altitude. 
The action is what sets the flaps to make the aptitude possible. So, so there's, there's an action. Another way to look at that, values determine evaluations. If I, if I am uh, involved in a, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and I am attempting a, a Christian work in, in seeking to honor and glorify that person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and I fail, then my failure is going to be wrapped up in the loving arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be able to adjust for that and, and move forward. But if I'm attending church to impress a group of people or to gain a certain benefit or because of a particular emotion that it, em that it emotes in me, and then there's a failure, then my value was never on Christ anyway. My value was on the experience of attending that church. And so that's going to determine how I evaluate it. All great leaders of the past and present have endured their fair shares of failures and setbacks. Everybody, I'm confident, knows the story of Abraham Lincoln. That guy was a perennial failure until he wasn't. He just failed and failed. He made a career out of failing until he didn't. And, and he would, uh, my dad has been saying this to me all of my life. I, for a long time, I thought Clinton Sexton said this. And then when I got old enough, I realized Abraham Lincoln said it. Uh, but a man can fail many times, but he's not a failure until he blames somebody else. Well, that was Abraham Lincoln. F.B. Meyer, I was just reading the other day some, some, some information about F.B. Meyer. And, and he said this, he said, If there be, therefore, perpetual failure in your life, it cannot arise from any weakness or impotence in the mighty God but from some failure on your part. That failure may probably be discovered in one of three hiding places. Imperfect surrender, deficient faith, or neglected communion. But when the intention of the soul is right with God, without doubt, he will say. Henry Ward Beecher said, failure is a school in which truth always grows strong. I'm afraid too often in our life, uh, we seek to go through life with no failures, and what we should be trying to do is fail early, fail often, and learn from it, right, and grow. The, the failure is not the greatest concern, rather, it's how we respond to the failure that becomes the greatest concern. We have to accept the failure, we have to acknowledge the loss, we have to abandon the sin if it is such, we have to adjust for those circumstances in the future. But one thing that we can't do is, uh, that we must not do, is repeat the same mistakes again. Look at chapter 7, verses 11 through 12. We read a lot of this the last time we were together, but it won't hurt to read it again. And the Lord said unto Joshua, get thee up, verse 10, wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Verse 11, he's going to define the issue. Israel hath sinned, they've also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them, for they have even taken of the accursed thing, and they have stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except you destroy the accursed thing among you. So if we are going to be looking at failure, we need to consider the practical elements of the defeat. What led to it? We said, what is the cause? What are the practical elements of that, And as we've already established, there's always a cause for failure. And if we want to be overcomers, 
then we have to be proactive in discovering the practical elements of defeat. And in order to accomplish that, we have to ask three questions. And you can define these any way you would like, but what caused the failure, where did it originate, and how can we prevent it from happening again? Once we ask these questions and consider them in honesty and transparency and with candor, we have a greater opportunity to, to avoid repetition since we know that everything rises and falls on leadership, then we understand that confession of personal mistakes is a part of that process. So in verses 16 through 21, Joshua does that. He, uh, I, I think that, and I'll say this in a moment, but I think that Corporately, there was a confession in, in the earlier verses that we just read during that prayer. I think there was a personal confession from Joshua there. I think that was a coming to for Joshua. I think that was a coming about for Joshua to say, okay, I realize where I failed now. Then there's, there's this, this moment where he goes through the tribes. And, of course, we know that in verse 20, Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels of weight, then I coveted them and I took them. Behold, they're hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Here we have this, this idea of confession. You, there is no defense from Achan. And that from a man who most certainly knew what was fixing to occur. I, I, I am confident that Achan knew what he had done. Uh, and, and if nothing else but for those 30 men, he would pay. But for breaking the, the commandment of God, certainly he's going to pay. And, and, but his confession is complete. We, we have this idea of corporate and personal confessions. And again, I believe that prayer covers some of that. But here... This, this confession of Achan is that, that that's going to remove the curse. Well, we're taught by scriptures that without confession, that the idea there is agreement. Nothing changes. Do, do you know that we could be guilty of the most egregious, sinful things? And if we came to the Lord in contrition and in confession, homologia, agreement, He would forgive us. He's faithful and just to forgive us and restore us unto righteousness. Do you know that by the same token, we could be guilty of the most simplistic little sinful thing? And we could stand before God and argue our innocence and argue that there was, a, there was a, another cause and a provocation and, and the guilt from that sin would far outweigh the guilt from that most egregious thing. Because what he's looking for is agreement. He's looking for us to say, my sin is as simple as you say it is. It is as bad as you say it is, Lord. What I've done, I've done against you and you only. And I don't deserve your forgiveness. And he's faithful and just to forgive us. It's a, 
It's that, that idea of correcting personal mistakes requires a, a confession of those personal mistakes. And, and oftentimes, people would rather argue causation or provocation. I think, I think I've told the story before of a, a pastor friend I had who uh, told me that his wife gave him an ultimatum. She didn't, she didn't want to be married to a pastor anymore. And so she said, either leave the church or I'm leaving you. And he told me that. I served with him in a ministry, not at the church, but in a ministry. And I said, he said, what would you do? And I'm not the wisest counselor in the world, but I said to him, I wouldn't lose my wife over any church. I just wouldn't. I, I'm sorry. I, you know, I would not lose my wife over a church. And uh, he said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I've got to make a decision Sunday. And I said, well, I'll be praying for you. And he called me that Sunday afternoon. And he said, I just want you to know I resigned my church today. I said, man, I'm really sorry to hear that. And uh, we set up a date for Monday for, to get together and talk over some things. And on that Monday, I said, so how did your, your wife, said her name, how did your wife take that news? He said, I don't know. I'm not going to talk to her about it. Uh, she should never back me in the corner. We're going to get a divorce. <laughs> I said, man, are you kidding me right now? He said, no, what are you talking about? I said, well, I wouldn't lose my wife over a church, but if I was going to dump my wife, I'd keep my job. I mean, I, I don't understand what's going on. Well, you know what was going on. He was having an affair with the secretary. That's what was going on, right? And so there was a continual defense and a pointing back to her until the light was shed on the fact that, no, it's you, big man. You're the one living in sin. Egregious sin. Destroying two families and a church. Right? It's that idea of, of we, when, when that's such a big thing that most of us, I pray to God, most of us will never have to address that. But it's the little bitty things that turn into great big stumbling blocks. Because we're worried about that big thing, but we can't adjust for these small things. Confession of personal mistakes, a correction of a problematic issue. We, we looked at this last week, but Joshua sends men. They find it. They bring it out. And they take everything he owned, all of his livestock, his whole family, and there's a great pile of stones over them at the writing of this book. They judge the problem. It's probably one of the greatest weaknesses in any leader is the inability to rightly judge himself and his people. If we believe that we have no faults, how can we ever improve? And look, this goes all the way down to the Sunday school teacher and the, the doorkeeper and the nursery worker. Yes, sir. Right? If we believe we have no faults, how can we ever improve? If, if we never improve, aren't we acting as an insane person would do by continuing to do the same old things, the same old ways, and expecting different results? As leaders, we have to diagnose and discover and directly correct problematic issues. Personally, I believe this is harder inside the church than anywhere in the world. Uh, I've had the pleasure of running a couple of businesses. It's a whole lot easier than church. 
much. Uh, there was a paycheck and there was a responsibility and I'm going to give one in exchange for the other. And if that other isn't accomplished, I'm not going to give the one, right? It's not that way in church. It, there's this overarching belief that, that, that since we're doing this for the Lord and so since this is the Lord's work, then, then we have to be merciful and gracious almost to a fault. And I mean, you really do have to be merciful and gracious almost to a fault. There's also so much of what is accomplished within the church that is volunteer work that when you, when you couple that with an inherently personal aspect of church work, rightly judging others is fairly difficult. Rightly judging self is also very difficult because... The measurement is either Christ, whom we can never measure up to, or other people whom we're not supposed to be comparing ourselves to. It's a, it's a, it's a conundrum of judgment. And what we, what we ought to be doing is judging based upon talents and a right application of gifts. It's not just in the church either. It's, it's in our families. We become blind to these issues. If a family is continually having financial issues, what's the problem? They spend too much money, right? You ever, you ever been around? I, I don't know if you've ever worked anybody or not. You ever been around somebody and say, I don't, get, I don't make enough money? Tell me why you don't make enough money. If you listen long enough, you'll find out they spend more than they make. That's why they don't make enough money. And if you pay them more, they'll spend more than they're still making. So there was an, there's an issue there that has to be corrected. If there's, if there's a continual, continual behavioral issue in a child, do we just continue to pay the bills? Or should we adjust and correct the behavioral issue in and, and we could go into business in that area too. I'm not too concerned with that. But in churches, if there's a stagnation of growth, whether it be spiritual or numerical, should we not rightly diagnose the problem, discover what it is, confess it, agree with God about it, and move on from it? She agrees with me. She's on my side. So you have to correct problematic issues, confess personal mistakes, consider and Concede past defeats. And when you do that, look at chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee and rise and go up to Ai. See, I am given into thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king as thou didst unto Jericho and her king. But he gives them the spoil. Let me tell you what just happened. Joshua and the nation of Israel just got connected back to the power supply. We, we, know, we know that they're reconnected because the Lord is speaking again. And the Lord's using that, that same phrase. Hey, don't, don't be fearful. Don't be discouraged. Do not be dismayed. I'm fixing to deliver them just like I delivered Jericho to you. Those are all, those are all good indications that Joshua's fixed the breakage and he's, he's praying again through his plans. And, and so he continues towards that goal. Look at verse 3. Joshua arose and all of the people to go up against Ai and Joshua, Joshua chose out 30,000 mighty men of valor. Sent them away by night. 
This is Joshua pursuing that goal and persistence and continuing towards it. His conquest has not been stopped. He's not been overcome by defeat. Rather, his confidence has been steeled by overcoming the defeat. And when he begins, uh, he's going, when he began, he was going to conquer Canaan by the Lord's power. Now that the contamination is dealt with, the conquest is back on, it's developing and again. What does that say to us as believers? How do we pursue our spiritual goals? Are we, are we pursuing those spiritual goals, whatever they are, until we are uh, uh, sidelined by a failure? And then uh, how do we address that failure? And once we do, then do we reconnect to, to God and to the power supply? And do we reignite that pursuit of spiritual excellence? Sometimes our methods change. Sometimes our mode of service may change. But our motive and our model is always Christ and the gospel. Always. And it should always be moving forward. As, at home as well as at church. Verses 25 and 26. And so it was that failed that day. Both of the men and women were 12,000. All of the men of Ai. Even all of the men of Ai. For Joshua drew not his hand back. Wherefore wherewith he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. I want you to see a completion, a complete execution of plans there. It's this, in this moment, the plan's not important. What's important is the accomplishment of it. He drew not his hand back until he utterly destroyed. We, we would think forward and we would think, well, Israel is going to be plagued by a legacy of incomplete obedience, but not this day. This day Joshua drove to the finish, completely obedient to God, completely in lockstep, and then he consecrates that victory with praise. And we looked at those verses last week, how he built an altar, and he read the word among the people, and he wrote the word there on the stone. We think about Failures and defeats and victories and overcoming. And I would remind you that all things are in God's hands. We can have no victory nor suffer any defeat except that it's part of God's greater plan. He, he is sovereign. And he has a, a plan, and this is his plan. His plan in the life of the believer is to conform you to the image of Christ. And he's going to do that with victories and defeats. He's going to mold us. He's going to make us into the image of his son. I was looking through some similar passages and Job said, naked I came out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Later he would say what? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? Shall we not receive evil? In all this did Job not sin with his lips. Later he said, who knoweth? Not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this. Then he would say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. And finally, Job would say, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. That's, a, that's an attitude that reflects what we're talking about. God is sovereign, and there may be failures, but I'm going to get it right with God and move forward. James would encourage us to 
Count it all joy when you fall into, fall into diverse temptations. That word there, different kinds of tests. Different types of trials. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And patience will have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Let God do his work in your life. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, all things work together for the good of those who love God. To them who are called according to his purpose. So with victory comes responsibility. And the responsibility is to praise the Lord for his goodness and his mercy. Giving him all the honor and glory for the victory. Overcoming defeat is not rocket science, but it is higher education. You have to live through it to know it. The immediate gain or loss, they're not near as important as the spiritual growth which may be revealed and fully appreciated in eternity. But you can write it down. Good leaders, let me say it this way, good believers overcome defeat. We don't live in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good night. Thank you, Lord, for your truths. And I pray you'd help us to walk in them, acknowledge them. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Pray you'd be with us in our prayer time. In Jesus' name, amen.